It's the Class Teaching Podcast with James Crane. Welcome to the Class Teaching Podcast, the Durrington Research School podcast. It aims to explore educational research and provide insights into how being an evidence-informed practitioner can support teaching and learning. Educational research does not provide a silver bullet, but coupled with teacher expertise, it can provide us with tried and tested approaches that the evidence suggests may lead to promising outcomes. In each episode, we will draw upon the experience of a teacher with particular expertise in the area we are looking at. Darrington High School is a large coastal secondary comprehensive school based in West Sussex and has been designated a research school by the Education Endowment Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at Durring Research. The purpose of this podcast is to help busy teachers like you connect with the latest thinking around ideas in teaching. In an accessible and easy format, we realise there is a wealth of blogs being published every week. The Class Teaching Podcast will start with me reading a blog and then spending some time with the author unpicking their thinking. This way you can listen on the drive to work or while walking the dog, rather than having to find the time to sit down in front of your screen during a busy day. What Remote Learning Has Taught Us About Practice by Chris Ronicles. In this, the fifth blog of the series, we'll be examining the lessons learned from remote learning with regards to student practice. In comparison to some of the other six principles, such as explanation, practice would appear potentially less negatively affected by remote learning. In essence, this is often the phase of learning in which students are most independent. However, without the teacher scaffolding and guidance, practice can often go wrong. And as we know, practice does not make perfect, but it does make permanent. Therefore, the work we have done over recent weeks on practice is sure to have provided some useful insights. What we have tried. Scaffolding student practice by providing worked examples. These completed or part-completed versions of the processes students are attempting help students to see how to work through the problem systematically. Scaffolding student practice by providing procedural checklists. These come in a variety of forms, one being rubrics on Google Forms, and help students to check their practice contains all the necessary component parts. Scaffolding student practice through the format of lessons. Our remote lessons developed over time in terms of the clarity of instructions and the resources that accompanied them. Modelling first before practice. Ensuring we get the modelling right before we ask students to practice helped to ensure they would be successful when working independently. Building the lessons of metacognition into student practice. Explicitly teaching students how to plan, monitor and evaluate what they are practising helps them to self-regulate. Retrieval practice. Building regular retrieval practice into remote learning ensured students would not forget what we had previously taught them. Space practice. There was a greater degree of this in remote learning with an understanding that the pace of the curriculum needed to slow and substantially embedding needed to happen. Sorry, substantial embedding needed to happen. Many topics were returned to recaps during remote learning. Practice with smaller chunks. It was harder for students to practice large pieces of extended writing effectively, so chunking the practice and only completing sections of writing was employed by subjects with high extended writing demands. Repetition. Practicing the same procedures over and over was often required during remote learning as students found it difficult to work with such independence and using multiple choice questions to support student practice. 
What we have learned. The practice continuum was thrown into spotlight during remote learning. It became clear as to the large amount of teacher guidance that is needed for independent and autonomous practice to be successful. In order for students to be, to be successful in practicing long complex procedures, they first need to practice with the composite parts. In the classroom, we perhaps compensate for students by scaffolding them through complex procedures, which can be unhelpful as when they finally com come to complete them without us, they are not able to. By ensuring the practice is chunked effectively, we actually support them better in getting to the finished product. Student self-efficacy is key to successful practice. Where students do not feel confident in a particular area, they find it difficult to engage with deliberate practice, where they push themselves to the edges of their capabilities. As teachers, we need to model our thinking as well as the process to aid effective independent practice. This helps build metacognitive regulation. Without scaffolding, practice can go very wrong. Some early remote lessons produced student outcomes that showed the students were not fully prepared for the practice they were engaging with. The conditions of retrieval practice need to be tightly controlled. We knew this already, but it was notable how unsuccessful it was where students were using resources rather than memory. Multiple choice questions, as long as they're carefully constructed, provide both excellent student practice in terms of retrieval, but also excellent formative insights for both student and teacher. For some students, in particular high attaining, time and space to engage in highly autonomous practice can yield excellent outcomes. Some work on an extremely high standard has been produced during lockdown. What we will keep. Greater awareness of where students are on the practice continuum. Remote learning has given us a timely reminder of the importance of knowing when to intervene and when to allow freedom. Tightly controlled retrieval practice, as we know, much looks like the retrieval practice simply isn't because students are not operating solely from long-term memory. Therefore, we must insist on the parameters being met. A high focus on the importance of building self-regulating metacognitive learners. This is the biggest lever to developing effective independent practice. Helping guide student practice with procedural checklist is already something we are seeing appearing in lessons now. It will be great to see how this develops. An understanding that our students are often able to surprise us with their capacity to produce truly excellent independent work. Knowing when we should step back and allow that freedom is something to retain. The continued development of multiple choice questions. We are on this path already, but the capacity of well-constructed multiple choice questions to perform multiple functions has shone a light on why we need to incorporate them further. And the use of worked examples to support practice. So I'm joined now um, by Chris Runnicles, who's the Assistant Director of the Durrington Research School. So first of all, thanks for joining me, Chris. Um, I just wanted to sort of go in with a, a couple of questions on, on the blog. Um, first one being sort of why do you think this is so relevant now? Yeah, so it was a really popular blog. Um, had quite sort of high numbers in terms of people uh, logging on and reading it, which was really good to see. Um, it's funny, actually, you can never be quite sure, I don't think, which blogs are going to be the popular ones um, and sometimes it's quite hard to predict. Um, but for whatever reason, this one resonated um, at the moment with people. I think that's probably because through lockdown, we all had to go through that struggle of trying to get our students to work independently. And that threw into stark contrast how, impor how important it is to structure independent practice in the right way so that students are successful with it. And while that's always an issue, I think because they were, you know, removed from us, weren't in our, our classrooms, that was a lot harder. 
and and so I think that sort of sparked a bit of interest in this particular area. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that you highlighted in there was the idea of um, the uh, the self-efficacy um, and the link to practice there. I just wanted to sort of you to share your thoughts really on how how you see self-efficacy in schools and how practice can help or hinder that. Yeah, it's an area that I really like. It's one of those bits of research evidence that when you come across it and you read about it, it's sort of it's a bit of a light bulb moment and it creates a bit of clarity around um, how you work directly with students. So, you know, it's Bandura, uh, for those who want to know a bit more about it, self-efficacy, that's the sort of starting point for it. Um, that's your Google search. And essentially, you know, it's that situational confidence. So how confident you feel within a particular task. Uh, and it's just a more useful way of describing that as opposed to just sort of whether a student is confident or not confident or unconfident. Because as we know, we can feel extremely comfortable in one particular situation and extremely uncomfortable in the next. Um, and I think therefore it's useful to think about where is our student's self-efficacy at any given moment. So that can be within the subject. So how do they feel about history as opposed to maths? You know, do, are they feeling different when they walk in each of those two classrooms? But also a sort of more granular level than that. So, you know, even within history, are they really confident when you're, um, you know, doing verbal explanation or asking them to do verbal explanation? But then are they really sort of struggling once it comes down to writing um, extended answers? And it's sort of, you know, that idea of how we can scaffold practice in a way that builds student self-efficacy. So they really gain that confidence in all of the different um, aspects that they need to be able to do in that particular subject. Um, and I think that is, as I say, a bit of a light bulb moment when you think of that. I think what is holding them back from feeling comfortable and confident to do this particular task? And how can I you know, put things in place to address that? Yeah, and how as we as teachers can develop or improve that self-efficacy? Yeah, yeah, any, yeah. Any ideas on that? Um, well, as I say, I think it is. It's sort of this idea of responsive teaching or scaffolding. You know, in the blog, I sort of um, used the practice continuum from making yeah. every lesson count, which is sort of a five-step continuum where you've got sort of, um, you know, complete dependence at one end where students require huge amounts of scaffolding in order to complete a particular task, all the way up to autonomy, where really that's the time where you should be stepping back and knowing when to uh, step back and allow that to happen. So it's about, for each individual student, knowing kind of where are they on that continuum for that particular task um, because by intervening in the right way you will help to build their self-efficacy so you know what I mean by that is if you have a student who at the, that time requires a lot of input but isn't getting it then they're not going to build their self-efficacy because they're just going to flounder and they're going to feel like it's beyond them so that's a problem on the other end of the scale if you've got a student who actually is ready to have the you know, to have the shackles removed and to say, um, just get on with it. I think in a way you can damage self-efficacy by still providing, you know, overly scaffolding the work. Because at that point, you're sort of inhibiting their um, ability to complete stuff independently. There's something called um, the expertise reversal effect, which is this idea that 
when you become an expert in something, it's actually damaging to get a load of um, instructional guidance on how to complete a task. What you need is the basic parameters and then to be allowed to let, you know, to do it. And one of the things I said in the blog, I think, is that, um, you know, some of our kids produced amazing independent work during lockdown. And that kind of, you know, it, it, it demonstrates what they're capable of. And sometimes I guess we can be guilty of not sort of removing those shackles early enough. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I absolutely noticed it that, Obviously, when you talk about lockdown and, and the restrictions that have been in place, you think there's going to be sort of three areas of students, students that have done all the work and have done well with it, students that are sort of dipped in and out and the students that haven't engaged at all. Mm. But I feel like there's also a fourth area there that students that have actually flourished and it's made you as the, the teacher realise, well, actually, I'm possibly restricting that student with the amount of guidance I've given them. They're not actually needing it for certain tasks. Yeah, it's a, it's, it, that's a useful insight, isn't it? Um, and it's probably something that we don't see that much in the classroom because, you know, we tr- it's hard to relinquish control within the classroom for all sorts of other reasons. You know, because you're in there with 25, 30 people and you need to be in control. And so that, I think, can lead us down a path of, of, of overly controlling what's going on. Um, now, obviously, this is not to say... You know, the message here isn't like, just let them get on with it. <laughs> but um, but there, there will be moments, and I think, as I say, lockdown, remote learning has probably um, reminded us of this, where we can be getting in the way of practice by overly scaffolding. You know, basic rule of scaffolds is they should, they should, you know, they should encourage thought, they shouldn't inhibit thought. And if we're putting scaffolds in, in place that are actually getting in the way of, deeper thinking then that's a problem um so you know i think that 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 sort of that connection with self-efficacy and practice is in order to build self-efficacy students have got to have the toolbox in order to practice effectively but also we need to know when to just you know stand back a little bit and let them get on with it um, and that's obviously really hard yeah and i think that's that's worth noting with scaffolding it's it's very difficult because there is no hard and fast rule. It's not a case of one size fits all. What would you say sort of the best bit of advice with regards to when you strip scaffolding back? When would you, how would you sort yeah. of tackle that area? Well, you're right. There's no, there is no, you know, basic answer to that question. It is about being responsive. And so this is when it, I guess, then starts to fit in with other aspects of pedagogy. So your formative assessment is ultimately what allows you to make those sort of informed decisions so the more you understand students capabilities strengths weaknesses whatever you want to call it then the better able you are to make that decision accurately um and then you can you know know when to when to remove those scaffolds and, and actually it's also i think knowing what those scaffolds look like and planning them carefully um and knowing you know which is the bit of this complex task that they struggle with and that's the bit i need to scaffold this bit I know they can do, so actually that's not where I need to scaffold. And scaffolds take multiple forms, so some can be how we you know, build a piece of writing, say, to a point where they can do it. But another might be, you know, a scaffold could be in terms of just getting a student started with the right intervention, the right word at the right time, and, you know, and, and it, can be, it can be that way. So... You know, it's a it's a broad church scaffolds, um, but I think the best way to think of it is it's it's uh, you know anything that allows students to 
complete a task that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do independently. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It's quite a tricky one because you're effectively, like you've said, with that scaffold, you're looking at this bit's quite easy, this bit's a little more tricky, they're going to need some support with this. Mm. But you're effectively, if we're talking about self-efficacy being a different uh, task or situational, yeah. that's effectively 25, 30 times for every different element of work that you're going to do. Yeah. So it's not something that's going to be the easiest of things to do. No, and... Yes, it's never going to be perfect scaffolding. So it would, could always be better. When you've got 25 brains in the room, you could always be scaffolding in a more precise and individual way. If you had unlimited time and unlimited resources, it would look very different to what it actually looks like on the ground. Yeah. And it's being okay with that, I think. You know, we're, we're not aiming for sort of perfection. It's impossible. So it's being a bit judicious and saying okay, this is what most of the students struggle with most of the time, so that's going to be my basic scaffold. Now, that's not going to hit everyone perfectly at the right point. Yeah. But, um, but you know, it's going to get enough that it's, that it's a useful exercise. Um, and it's also, I think, what's important is if they're going to get to that point where they can take scaffolds off, if you like, yeah. it's a sort of stabiliser analogy, um, then they have to have worked on each individual composite part of whatever it is they're doing before they try and put it together. So what I mean by that is you don't want to do one big complex task that you get into practice. And the way you, get, you facilitate that is by you know, really extensive scaffolds that allow them to do that complex procedure. A much better way round is practicing each individual composite part so that they're confident with it. And then when they put that together into the complex procedure, then they need fewer scaffolds in order to be able to do that because they're more confident with the composite parts. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So it's, um, you know, as I say, the scaffolds are only necessary um, to plug the gaps where they really struggle. We don't want to, you know, this isn't about writing frames necessarily, yeah. you know? But then that, obviously, the chunking of that bigger task into the composite parts ties, like you said, directly in with the formative assessment element. Yeah. In terms of the students needing feedback on each of those composite yeah. parts. So yeah. it's a, a never-ending cycle, really. It, absolutely, it is. And, um, and as I say, I think it's, it's being okay with it not being perfect as well. Uh, I think that's important because otherwise, you know, you can tie yourself up in knots with it. And I think we've seen that over the years with, you know, when we see sort of say something like a differentiation initiative, when, you know, you've been asked to do x number of things with with each individual student and it just being unmanageable um you know i always think you, you, we've got to be pragmatic with this as well yeah i completely agree and um, and then one of the other things you you spoke about in the blog that i found really interesting was this idea and, and the importance of building self-regulated metacognitive learners mm-hmm. um, and this being a big lever to developing effective independent practice yeah so i just wanted to sort of unpick you on that really yeah so again these things all connect so for students to be able to practice really effectively, ultimately they need to be self-regulating learners. So they need to be able to purposefully direct what they're doing from an informed point of view. So they need to know like, what are my toolbox of strategies I've got to complete this task. And that will then help them plan how to do it. Um, they need to be able to judge accurately how well it's going, which is not as easy as it sounds. Um, and we need to teach them how they can ju- make those yeah. judgments. And that might be a scaffold. So that, you know, I mentioned this idea of checklists, procedural checklists. 
So, you know, as they're doing something, have you done X, have you done Y, have you done Z? Oh, no, I haven't done that. Okay, I need to include that. So that's sort of teaching them how to monitor. And then obviously at some point, that procedural checklist can disappear because they've done that thinking. And then next time, or you know, much not the next time, but down the line, they can start to self-regulate and start to be thinking, have I got that in? Have I done that? Is that there in that piece of work that I'm trying to do? Um, and, and then the, the evaluative part is then to be able to look back accurately and sort of say, how did that go? And I think that's a really important part of practice is the evaluative bit at the end of it. So Which what, often gets missed. Right. So, and for good, you know, for you know, really understandable reasons that, you know, finally got to the end of that thing. So you've been teaching, teaching, teaching. You've done all your explanation and modelling and questioning. You've got to the practice bit, the end point, if you like, which it often is. And they do that and you feel like, that's done. Completed that phase of learning. I'm ready now, finally, to move on to the next thing. And so it's easy then to, for that evaluative bit to drop off. And also, students tend to be reluctant to do that bit you know, because they feel it's done and it's gone. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a really complex, say, peer marking activity that. It can be as simple as just some questioning and a bit of, okay, we finished that, so what strategies did we use? Which ones worked? Which ones did it? Did you find it hard? Did you find it easier? Has that got any better from the last time we did it? And just a bit of questioning like that, sort of stru- what we call structured reflection, is going to really help that practice then develop into the next time you do it, I think. So, um, you know, the metacognition element is that extra layer on top so that we're using the student as an intervention into improving their learning. And it's not all about what we do for them. It's also what they're thinking at the time that's, you know, making that learning experience better and that's good for them and it's good for us. Yeah, and it's a simple place to start, which you, you've mentioned previously, is this idea of getting students to purposely direct their own learning, but through the forms of planning, monitoring, and then evaluating. That's right. Yeah, and that's hard, actually. It's, it's tricky because it's domain-specific. So it's how you plan, monitor, and evaluate in each of those different domains. So you've got to pick and choose a bit. You can't do it for everything. So you've got to think, right, this is the one I'm going to target at the moment and then I'm going to build that in you know as we go along with more different things um, and it takes time to work out what that looks like and it takes you know a group of teachers probably to sit down and think well okay well how do you plan this what are the strategies that go into this what are they what are all the different composite pits okay they're these things how can we help students to understand that and then to direct them um, which is ultimately why Metacognition is a hard thing to implement, I think. Uh, certainly, you know, as someone who's been responsible for implementing it over the last few years here, uh, has yeah, very, become very obvious to me. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Well, um, as ever, Chris, plenty of uh, food for thought there. So thank you very much for joining me and I look forward to speaking to you later. Great, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Class Teaching Podcast by Durrington Research School. It's the Class Teaching Podcast with James Crane.